The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. So hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Cinematography Podcast. If you're listening to us and you've listened to all of them, it means you've basically spent almost two full days of your life. That's right, because our shows are long. They're freaking long. Some of them are close to two hours. But the last one, the last one was two hours, two hours, three minutes. Yes. One before that, though, clocked in. I think it was, uh, it was pretty, short. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, Shalada's was very, very short. You know, no one complains about the length of our episodes. In fact, the thing that we hear more often than not is... I want more. I want more. And in, you know, over the last couple of years, we would get fan mail from time to time. People would, would send a letter in. But because it was always such a huge gap between our shows, it always seemed a little bit weird to read like fan mail on the show because, yeah. you know, months would have gone by and it's, <laughs> hey, remember that email you sent us like, you know, three months ago during the Clinton administration? <laughs> well, uh, the good news is, is that that fan mail has not stopped and we love getting fan mail and we love responding to all the fan mail that we get. So I'd like to read a couple of letters here that we've received this week. I say go for it. Let's do some log rolling. We don't do very much of that. Okay, here it is. Uh, We've got a email here from a professor. Hello, Ben. I'm a professor. I'm assigning some of the great interviews from your cinematography podcast to my students. Hell yeah. Just wanted to let you know. I'm realizing as I write this that you may have gotten a bunch of emails about this. That I, I have not. Go on. <laughs> that community cable access television is alive. We have it all over Massachusetts. Many of the students intern at community access. But love your podcast. Perfect for my students. Love the first part of your interviews, especially where there is talk about how they got into film. Thank you for your work. Best, Todd. Thank you, Todd. That's Todd Wemmer. Thank you very much, Todd. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you, Todd. That's awesome. Thank anyone uh, who's listening to us. Feel free to drop us a line. And in fact, also uh, feel free to uh, make requests. Tell us what you think of the show. Tell us who you want us to get on the show. Actually, our next piece of fan mail, they did exactly that. Our next piece of fan mail comes from Paul in Germany. And he writes, hello, Ben and Ilya. Hello. Here, Here is Paul from Germany with a little fan letter. Hey, Paul. I just wanted to tell you, I think your podcast is really amazing. I listen to it all the time when I drive to work and back from it. I started with the Charles Pappert episode. Thank you for I am a huge Key and Peel fan. Me too. Since that episode, I listen to almost every episode. Your questions are always great and well thought out. Even the stock questions bring amazing answers. So keep up the good work and don't stop. I am trying to become a DOP. I am really learning a lot from your podcast. It is very inspiring to listen to your guests. And since that last episode, I am also thinking about doing my podcast. You said at the end that the, of the episode that people should think about creating a podcast. And I am currently thinking about interviewing German filmmakers and visual effects artists. I know it's a ripoff. Sorry, but maybe I can think of something new. And then he goes on to list a wish list of his future guests, including someone you mentioned in the last episode, Ellen Curris. Totally and, would love to get Ellen Curris. Ellen, if anyone knows Ellen Curris, please uh, put her in touch with us. We're, st- we're working on it. We're going to get to there. And then he lists a bunch of uh, German, great German cinematographers. And he says, kindest regards, Paul. So, hey, Paul. Thank you, Paul. That was that was awesome. So awesome and, and to get. Paul, you don't have to worry because uh, although we did patent the idea of interviewing people, <laughs> it is only patent pending. 
So, so <laughs> rip off away. Go for it. <laughs> Please rip us off because yeah, this was not the most. It, it was original in that we decided to do it with DPs, but you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? I'm sure that there's tons of people who'd love to listen to you do it. So, uh, I, let me be the first to encourage you to to to, to get it going. I'm just happy that my questions sound well thought out, which means the illusion is complete. <laughs> Hey, and we got one other, it wasn't quite so much as an email, but it was a a Facebook comment, but it might have been the most flattering thing that anyone has ever said about our podcast. Uh, Someone recently, and I wish I had screenshotted it because I can't find it now, but they said that the cinematography podcast has the best signal to noise ratio of any cinematography related podcast, which is only cool to cinema geeks like this who understand signal the noise or yeah. audio people but boy that that's a that's a really that's high praise well i will say that we did talk about before we ever started doing this that we didn't want to have a podcast where we sat around and talked about what we had for breakfast for 25 minutes before we get to the meat the thing people are here for that that's true and then speaking of which we should probably stop talking about our fan mail right now and move right into what this episode is about and this episode is about Rachel Morrison. Rachel Morrison. Hey, when we recorded our last episode and and we're all excited about the fact that we got to interview Rachel Morrison, who is an amazing DP, who has a a beautiful past and a brilliant future. Little did we know she was about to be nominated for Best Cinematographer. And not only that, she's the first woman to be nominated for Best Cinematography. And not only that, the movie she shot, it's the first time that a Netflix original uh, feature has been nominated for anything and it was her nomination. It's so awesome. Uh, it's giving me goosebumps just thinking about I'm, it. That's fantastic. I'm so excited and Rachel was so cool and we, we recorded at her house. I don't really think you can tell a difference in the audio quality because Mike Wilbanks did such a good job of cutting around the dog that was barking next door. Ooh, and what about the cat that was scratching in the other room? You, you don't hear any of it. I, oh, I, I that's, was, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, it's amazing what you can do with Adobe Audition. You just go in there and uh, just you know use the little pen tool and uh, get rid of the thing on the waveform. It's amazing how you can just erase sounds. And, and if you're listening to this episode without having listened to the last episode, go back and listen to Rachel's war story, which is also fantastic. Yes. And unlike a lot of our war stories, she doesn't repeat it in her interview. It, 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 she saved just her war story to be the war story. I don't think we need any more intro than that. And here is Rachel Morrison. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Welcome, Rachel Morrison. Thank, Thank you for having you. us at your house. Oh, thanks for coming out. So let's start out. I have my one or two kind of stock questions that kind of get the ball rolling. And you can agree with even the premise of this or, or disagree with it. But I feel like when I'm talking to uh, DPs, a lot of times they either start with an idea of lighting and how they're going to light a scene and then move in and comp- and find compositions within that. Or they start with a sense of composition and then figure out how to light that. When you're reading a script, what do you see first? I think it depends on the movie for me. Like, there, you know, with Mudbound, I definitely saw compositions first because I saw the photography that it sort of inspired me from, you know, Farm Security Administration and, and all the WPA photography. And that was, for the most part, black and white. So I wasn't thinking in terms of color or lighting or anything. Other films, you know, I, I definitely think the lighting is kind of the, the thing that, that the first part of the tone picture that sort of comes into mind. And when I approach a scene, I guess sometimes I sometimes I feel like I know how I'm gonna light the space, and then I find you know the camera the camera movement within it. And other times I know I want to do you know a complicated oneer, and then I have to figure out how to light that oneer. So it sort of depends. Mm-hmm. And and I think that question for me is also kind of designed to say like when someone hands you a script and you're reading the script, how do you start t- 
turning that those words into pictures? What what is your specific process for that? The first time, I think I actually try to just let the script wash over me and not get too particular with visuals. Certainly when I meet a director, I've sort of, my, my process has evolved, but it's very rare that I come to a first interview with like any kind of a, a lookbook or even visual references. It's I kind of want to hear what the director's take on, on the film is first, because ultimately, you know, my job is to sort of translate their vision. I mean... I probably have at least a loose sense of something in my head. And, and if we were on, you know, diametric, is that a word? Yes, diametrically opposed or something? Diametrically opposed kind of takes on, on how to visualize a film, then maybe we're not the best fit for each other. But, you know, they're, they're, this is a subjective medium. It's definitely not the kind of thing where there's a right answer or wrong answer. So sometimes I like to sort of hear what and how much they have, you know, in their head visually. And then I try to fill in all those gaps. But, you know, usually it's like the second or third reading where I start to really like think about things in terms of, you know, I think this would be great handheld or, you know, this should really be single source lighting or, you know, things like that. Is there is there a specific approach that you take when you're looking at it when you when you're getting to that point? So you're on the third read. Are you looking at visual references? Are you coming up with visual references? Like, is it just kind of coming into your head as a fully formed thing already? Yeah, I think I approach each scene by figuring out what character's point of view it is and, and kind of who's guiding that scene. And then I, I try to get to the emotional like stakes of the scene and light and compose as a reflection of, of that character's journey. For me, it's a, a very subjective art form, and I really try to, to let the subjectivity drive the cinematography. So you tend to think within the characters. I mean, I mean that makes sense because most of your stuff has been very character driven. Yeah, and I think that's that's certainly the the type of film that I'm attracted to. But yeah, I mean, I think our our goal or my goal is to you know try to empathize with whose story we're telling and then try to kind of reflect and visualize that. That must have been a real challenge with Mudbound because the point of view changes so frequently and literally changes to people who see things the opposite way that the other people see it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's, I think, really interesting and compelling. And I mean, quite frankly, it's, I think, a testament to Dee that it worked. I I certainly have my doubts. I mean, I loved the script and I was really excited by the premise of of shooting it, but I was terrified too for that exact reason. I, I feel like ensemble cast movies back in the day worked so well in part. Well, for one thing, we had a much longer attention span. But for another thing, you know, Altman movies were three hours long. And, yeah. and now the combination of not having the attention span and, you know, and, and movies kind of having the 90 to 100 minute cutoff, Mudbound actually, it is a little bit longer and probably this is part of it. But I'd done an ensemble cast movie, I won't say which one, but once they kind of made the, the short version of it, all these interweaving stories kind of fell apart. Mm. And that was something that I was really nervous about with Mudbound. Just to say that, that Dee and our, our editor, Mako, just did an incredible job, I think, making so many different points of view kind of work in, in one narrative. And my approach visually was to give characters their own motif, but to make sure that it felt like it was part of a whole. I think if I'd gone to, for lack of a better word, babble with it, you know, one character is blue, one character is yellow, it, it, yeah. would have, it wouldn't have worked for this film. Did you know when you were making it, we'll get back, we'll get to Mudbound a little sure, bit later sure. and, and go into a deeper dive on it, but did you know that it was for Netflix when you were making it? No, it wasn't. Yeah. At, th- at that point, it was a independently financed feature film for theatrical release. Oh, wow. So when Netflix picked it up, because, you know, when you talk about short attention spans, I mean, that's Netflix. People give something, you know, five, 10 minutes and then be like, eh, boring and turn it on to the next thing. And Mudbound, you know, does like scream for like pay attention to like you have to pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah. Netflix was kind of our saving grace because, you know, it's it's 
a subject matter that was daunting to a lot of distribution companies, I think, especially in a, in the wake of where we are right now and people not necessarily going to see dramas, which mm-hmm. is really unfortunate. You know, the, the great thing about Netflix was that it does have a wide release and a wide reach. And, and yeah. some people who would never have gotten to see this movie are, are going to get to see it because of Netflix. That said, when I shot it, it was for theatrical. I would have maybe shot it differently if I had known that the platform was going to be for people's home computers or, you know, iPads or television systems or whatever. I watched it on a big screen television, okay. you know. <laughs> but again, I mean, I, I am really grateful. I think it, it wouldn't have gotten seen to the extent that it has probably any other way. Well, that, that is the thing. Like, I do sort of wonder how many more eyeballs you tend to get if you put something up on Netflix versus if you were to put it in theaters. And obviously Netflix is making a giant push to release movies like that and bright and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, uh, so it makes sense, you know, from an, in an interesting way, but I, I guess I also want to see movies like that, that have that scope on a bigger screen. Yeah. I mean, it, the scope is something that's both, I mean, I'd like to think it's, it's visual and cinematic I mean, that's part of it, but it's, it's actually less about people seeing it on a big screen and more about the, the captive audience, you know, and, and the fact that you can't just, you know, look down at your phone or go to your refrigerator totally. or put, you know, hit the pause button and finish it later. Like, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of it. Like I, I you know, I, I think I'm almost the worst. I think about like, I mean, I, I actually loved both Dunkirk and Blade Runner. And what I loved about it was how, you know, the theatrical experience of them. And I don't, honestly, I don't know if I would have liked those movies as much if I tried to watch them at home. My wife and I saw uh, Inside Lewin Davis, the, uh, mm-hmm. the Coen Brothers movie. We watched it on an Academy screener and we didn't really, we were kind of like, this is kind of boring and we didn't like it that much. And then we found ourselves like kind of obsessed with the music. And then like a week later we went to see it in the theater and we're like, oh my God, this is devastating and beautiful and brilliant. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it, it can't compete with, like you're saying, you know, you're playing words with friends and uh, looking away from the, <laughs> from the screen. And, you know, it's like, you're not, you're not fixed in that. And I think a movie like Mudbound, let's just get into it and talk about Mudbound. Sure. That's fine. <laughs> but a movie like Mudbound, it, it has so many moments that are kind of hard to watch yeah, that are yeah. that are challenging and difficult. And when you're home watching it, you're right. You hit pause. You go make some, you know, you, you go make some mac and cheese. You leave the room, you, you know, whatever. You look away and it's too easy to look away. Yeah. You know, especially when you get to, I don't want to spoil the movie, but some of the stuff towards the end of that movie is just like outrageously, you know, it's 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 challenging as an audience member. Yeah. And, and I think important to watch. So usually I go back and talk about like your education, whatever, but let's like start with Mudbound and work backwards a little bit. So talk a little bit about how Mudbound came to you, how you came to shoot Mudbound. I think Dee called me directly. We, we sort of knew each other. We were sort of mutual fans and ran in similar circles, but had never worked together. And she called me and said, I have this project that I think you'd be really good for. And I read it and I was just like, fuck yeah. I was a fan of hers starting as early as Pariah, but also the fact that she was able to take the short form Pariah and make a really, you know, I thought a really masterful feature version of that film. I know how challenging that is. Like I know how many people sort of try to take their shorts and adapt them to features and not succeed at that. So I I had a lot of respect for D going into it. And then, you know, a period film is a gift to its cinematographer. I, I, I'd always wanted to shoot a period film and I'd done like a tiny, any day now I was set in the seventies, but it was so low budget that it was, you know, it was one of those films that just outside of every wall was something contemporary. And so it sort of has this kind of smaller feeling because you're trying to get away from that. So it was, it was a dream to shoot anything period, but this period in particular is something that I've always been really, really interested and compelled by. Like, I think the reason I got into photography ultimately as a career was was the Farm Security Administration photographers. And this is sort of, it's, you know, just after that era, but the South is so kind of a decade behind that it really is an extension of the same. 
so it's, it was a period that I was really interested. In. So wait, so back up. So that, so what is it about that that got you into cinematography in the first place? I just fell in love with like the, you know, Dorothea Lange and Gordon, Gordon Parks and Walker Evans and mm. Arthur Rossi and Ben Sean and all of these, you know, the, the whole, the WPA initiative, which was let's send photographers around the world to show each other how the other half lives. And that's how we're going to, you know, expose. Ex- I've never even heard of that. Oh, really? Yeah. That was, it was um, FDR, like mm. 1920, it was right after the Depression. And basically, you know, it was kind of this idea that, like, let's help our neighbors, but also let's 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 document the state of affairs. And it was because of, I mean, it's been a while, so I could be wrong here, but it, it was because <laughs> of a lot of these exposés that they then put the road, the national highway, I don't know what the uh, government agency is, but they were like, oh, shit, we got to fix our roads. Oh, shit, we got to have, you know, a, a public... Medicaid, Medicare, like all of these things kind of came out of seeing just how bad it was in Oklahoma or like, oh, wow. Yeah, it was really, it was really impressive. And the photography I just thought was, I mean, you you know, the famous ones, like, you know, Migrant Mother and, you know, I'm sure, you know, most of Walker Evans portraits, but I just, it was like that dust bowl kind of stuff. Yeah. It was really about just capturing these, this moment in time. I mean, and not glorifying things, you know, it was, it was about really documenting and not, you know, not exploiting, not glorifying, just this is, this is how it is. That's really interesting. I'm going to look into that more after this. I was unaware that that happened. And that's interesting to, just from an anthropological yeah. <laughs> standpoint, you know, see, when you see those pictures and you realize like those people, you know, it's not that they don't know what a camera is or a photograph is, but they're not thinking about how to present themselves. Yeah. Right. And what was cool too, is like for, I mean, for the time, I think, you know, there was Bernice, uh, I forget her last name, but it was like there were, you know, let's say there were 12 kind of well-known FSA photographers. Mm-hmm. Three were women, one or two were black. Like it was also a really kind of diverse group of, of people behind the camera, which I oh, thought was cool. so cool. Clearly we've gone the opposite direction since then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, so so it was, a, it was a really easy yes for me. Like, you know, I, I, I the script always comes first for me, but the director is a close second. So mm-hmm. when both of those things are are working, then you're already, I don't know, it's already a win. Well, and, and, you know, the movie obviously deals with aspects of racial justice and stuff like that. And I feel like there's maybe echoes of Fruitvale Station. Did the experience that you had on doing a film like Fruitvale Station inform how you were? Sure. I mean, that's, so Fruitvale is everything I'd always wanted to do, which is to combine art with messaging. Like, and that was sort of inadvertently how I landed on Fruitvale was I told Elise McKimmy, who does the Sundance Labs, kind of, she at one point said, you know, what, what's your dream material? And I described, inadvertently described Fruitvale like a year earlier. And so when Ryan was looking for a DP, she was like, you should really talk to this DP, Rachel Morrison. And then we, of course, hit it off. I mean, he's just amazing. And I sort of fell in director DP love from the moment we, you know, we actually had a Skype conversation first and then I met him in person. But that definitely set the bar. You know, here I was, I always wanted to do narrative, but really I always wanted to do narrative that that had, that was going to push some buttons and that had something to say. And at that point I was like, you know, stuck in reality TV hell, basically doing the opposite of that. (laughs) So once I did Fruitvale... It was like, I'm never going back. I mean, but not just reality. I mean, that I'd already kind of closed that chapter, thankfully. But, you know, like as much as I enjoyed shooting Tim and Eric, that wasn't my calling. Like that, I've never, I've never had the desire to become a comedy shooter or a horror shooter. Like I've always sort of really wanted to shoot, 
you know, dramatic films and specifically, I mean, I think also as our, as our landscape gets more and more fucked up, I just feel like we owe it to ourselves to have something to say, like not just to entertain for entertainment's sake or escape for escapism's sake, but, you know, you can always hide, you can even hide a message into, you know, blockbuster films. And I think that, that we really, it's important to do that. When did it occur to you that you wanted to kind of shoot films or make art that had some kind of a message buried in it or some kind of some, something a little bit meatier than just, you know, making a horror movie, which, by the way, I'm the world's biggest horror movie fan. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I, like I, that's something that was almost like a on a gut level. Only now I can describe what it is. I mean, that that's sort of what I was saying. Like, I think once I shot Fruitville, I could put my finger on, oh, my God, this is what I've been trying to trying to do. Were there movies early on that influenced you that where you were like, oh my God, they're able to use this medium in such an interesting way? You know, what's funny is actually the, the first films that I was really inspired by had nothing to do with even anything real. Like I actually used to love films that had a magical realism component, um, like City of Lost Children and all the Wong Kar Wai films, which are, I guess, not magical realism, but they're just incredible. Yeah, highly stylized. Uh, highly stylized, you know, and, and just foreign films. Like There's a Canadian film called Leolo. City of God, which I guess isn't magical realism. It's just realism, but... Super stylized, though, like super yeah. colorful, saturated. Yeah, which obviously isn't the direction I went as a, as a cinematographer. But I think along along the way, I also really enjoyed films that were based on true events, that had a political component, uh, whether they were fictional or, or not. So films like The Insider, films like Three Days of the Condor, films like All the President's Men. It just felt like the perfect melding of something that was entertaining, but also had had something to say. So that's just sort of the direction that I've gone whenever I can. It's not to say that I wouldn't do a film that was pure entertainment by any means. Well, you did do Black Panther. But which... but even Black Panther has some messaging, which I knew when Ryan, when Ryan signed on to do this movie, I was like, there's no way we're not going to have something to say. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I keep seeing, and it's been going on for like 20 years, where somebody makes, somebody makes a splash as an interesting independent filmmaker and the next thing you know, they're just making superhero movies for the rest of their lives. From Brian Singer, I want the guy who made The Usual Suspects, you know, I want... To infuse it yeah. with something. Yeah, well, this is, I think it's very much a, a Ryan Coogler movie, you That's know? so great to hear. And it's cool because we get to reach a much wider platform because we are a superhero film, but I think it, it will challenge people to think about things. I mean, even... I would say even the protagonist has, you know, some challenging ideas and, and the antagonist does too. And it, it's good. It's, it makes you think. So with Mudbound, when I was watching it, I just kept thinking, I, I'm sure that you guys were making it maybe a year more ago, how timely it really is. Like it's shocking how timely it is. Yeah. Disturbing how yeah. timely it really is. <laughs> we uh, made it before Trump. So, yeah. you know, it, it felt timeless but I think it's become fucking timely in a yeah. really depressing way. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, movie, movies like Get Out, too. You know, it's like they, yeah. they obviously existed before that, but somehow like struck a, a nerve in watching it. I just kept, kept thinking about that. So what was the thinking? What, can, you, can you walk us through any of the creative process that brought about Mudbound? I think that, that the biggest kind of overarching theme was the idea of, you know, the American dream versus the American reality and sort of that being... Well, on the one hand, the thing that, that separates us, and on the other hand, the thing that unifies us. Like, if you look at the black family and the white family, they're both striving for the same thing, which is land ownership and money and success and, and security. But then the cards that they're dealt just by the color of their skin kind of puts them at complete, you know, uh, opposition from one another. And so I, that was one of the things I think we wanted to explore, the relationship between man and nature, you know, our attempts to kind of 
overcome and tackle the elements and and ultimately that's not something that we can succeed at isolation versus unification i mean there there are actually a lot of things how does that start to manifest in the way that you're i i, I hate to be so nuts and bolts about it but how do how do you translate that to here i'm going to use this lens or i'm going to light it like this so okay so we started by sort of figuring out that the first i don't know if it's the whole first act but the beginning of the film you know both families are kind of in good places with their lives so we decided we would shoot you know in a steady kind of fluid manner dolly steady cam uh, no handheld, colorful, saturated. And then as they get to the farm, you know, for the McCallans, their their sort of world kind of starts to devolve. And just the McCallans' presence in the Jackson's family sort of forces that to devolve as well. And so we started to sort of drain the color out and we started to introduce more handheld. And the nice thing about handheld, one of the things I really, really love about handheld and why I, I shoot a good amount of it is that you can attenuate it. Like you can have, fluid is kind of just fluid, but with handheld you could say like on a scale of one to 10, this scene's gonna be a two and this scene's gonna be a six. And like Mm -hmm. there's really, you can kind of mirror the stakes by how handheld you go. And do Um, you you tend to operate your own camera? I do whenever I can, yeah. Um, I did on my bound. I mean, I basically have on almost everything. It's usually a, a battle with the union, but it, you know. Either, oh, really? Either there's an operator sitting on a truck getting yeah. paid, or it's or I get permission to. And with the major, it's ironic, but the majors you're actually allowed to operate, but the majors is when you don't necessarily. <laughs> well, you <know>, yeah. <laughs> when you when you can afford all, all the operators in the world, but on Panther I didn't. You know, I, I I think I recognize what a big undertaking it was, and just that. Probably I'd be better off, you know, trying to trying to multitask all the other a million things that had yeah. to be done on any given day. So I'll definitely and, ask you about that because I always wonder about when you get to a movie of that size, how much of it is cinematography and how much cr- of it cr- is, yeah, is, yeah is management. management. Uh, well, we can definitely come back to that. But you know, the other thing is my strength as an operator is in handheld. I, I think one of the things that that's really amazing about camera operating is that it's so instinctual, and you're really responding to the performances in front of you, and and it's like. You know, I, I say that I try to shoot from my heart, but it's you're shooting from a combination of your heart and your gut. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's so instinct driven. So I find that sometimes, you know, until you you find you do find those operators that that share your instincts and almost like you know telekinesis, and they're kind of they're operating from the same gut that you have. But there are other times where it's like a game of telephone, and by the time you kind of tell the operator what you're responding to, it's the moment's kind of missed. But what I was going to say is that, you know, I, I my strength is in handheld, but I'm, I'm not, I'm no better at, at studio mode or, and I'm probably a lot worse at wheels than, than all the great operators. So with something like Panther, I, I don't know how much of an asset I would actually even be. I think it's, it's a film that's largely handheld where I, where I would feel strongly about trying to operate. So when you talk about that, like, do you have any wisdom that you could impart to anybody about how you approach handheld, what the, your do's and don'ts or your checklist or what, what it is that you go, what go, what's going through your mind? when you're looking at a scene and deciding kind of, you know, the scale of one to 10? I, no, I mean, I think you just have to feel it. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, certainly some of it's on the page. Like, you know, going into a scene that it's going to be between a three and a five, but yeah, you really just, you, I, I, that's, that's the kind of thing that you kind of can't plan for. The nice thing too about handheld is actors don't have to be so critical with marks and you can kind of like, if somebody gives a totally different performance, you can respond to that. Um, where sometimes when you're, you know, on track, the actor goes off in their own sort of mental space and, and they're not sort of playing by the same rules. You've nowhere to go with it. Whereas with handheld, it's like a dance. You can dance with them. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like trying to, yeah, trying to tell somebody how to 
how to in, in, intuit, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, I think operating is so much intuition. When you're talking about how in Mudbound you bled the, the saturation out, is that something that you did on set or is that something that was mostly done in post? Uh, not in post. It was done in a combination of production design and DIT on set. You know, I think people have two different approaches for the post world in, in, a, in the DIT, in the, sorry, digital space landscape that we tend to be in. And some people try to, to do as little on in camera as possible and kind yeah. of just, you know, one lookup table or even just rec 709 and do it all down, downstream. Shoot it in post. And other people try to do as much as they can in camera. And that's, that's me. I mean, in camera in conjunction with, you know, with a DIT. And the reason for that for me is just, I find way more often than not that directors fall in, into Daly's love and, you know, whatever they're working with for, three to six months or however long is, is kind of what the movie is going to look like. Like getting a director to go a completely different direction in the final DI has, I've, I've found is like pulling teeth, you know? Um, and so that's the main reason for me is just, I, I really feel like, I mean, it's, it's also, I, I could sleep better at night too, knowing that, that it looks the way I want it to look, but it's because I know that that's how some some iteration of that with a couple power windows is kind of what the final DI is going to be. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. So so for this, we did, you know, the first step of it was production design. David Bomba was amazing on Mudbound and kind of just, you know, we knew that when we got to the farm, we weren't going to have, you know, yellow yellows or red reds. It was always going to be sort of a muted pastel version of those colors, faded faded version of those colors. And did you like make lookbooks or uh, yeah, palettes had, or anything? No, before? we had lookbooks. Mm. Yeah. Dee had a bunch of references, which were, none of them were actually narrative films, which was kind of liberating. So David Bamba, who's our incredible production designer, kind of made a decision by the time we got to the farm that we were not going to have, you know, saturated colors. And, and that was, it was all sort of, you know, became more faded, faded color palette and pastels and all of these things. And so once you have that in camera, there's not that much that you need to do. And I was really careful not to just sort of hit the DSAT button or hit the like <laughs> T-stain, now it's yeah. a period film button in in the DIT land. Like, yeah. I really wanted to find that balance where it felt like, I don't know, just it felt real and authentic and not stylized. And I think that a lot of period films have a tendency to sort of glorify the error that they're photographing. Yeah. It does feel so lived in and yeah. in, in, in every way. And that I know that that goes to production design and wardrobe and everything, but it does, you know, there's that, the sense of when you're making a period piece, sometimes it looks like, you know, you pristine. Yeah. Yeah. New clothes off the rack. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. This was definitely like above all else. I think we wanted it to feel authentic. Yeah, it was not. It was not about glorifying. If anything, it was about you know the distressed version to be contrasted with what the idealized version would have been. I, I think we did as much as we could in camera, in conjunction with you know a little a little bit of like we did develop a, a lot that was. I think we introduced a little bit of blues into the blacks and you know pulled out a few points of saturation and maybe a few points of contrast, mm-hmm. but nothing extreme. Was this before Black Panther? After Black Panther? What was the proximity of those two shoots to each other? and Black Panther. Yeah. I went from Mudbound basically straight to Black Panther. Crazy. So I know you can't talk about any plot specifics of Black Panther, so we're not even going to mess with that. But what is it like going from a movie like Mudbound straight to what's going to basically be a studio tentpole film for, you know, what is a giant run of success for Marvel and Disney right now? I mean, I think it was more about going from you know, not ever having done anything even remotely like Black Panther to a movie like Black Panther. Yeah. I'd never actually done anything exactly like Mudbound either. Um, Mudbound was exciting and fun because it was something new. And 
Panther was the same. Like it was terrifying. Don't get me wrong. I was, I was, I don't know how long I went without sleeping before I, know that, I, before mean, that, I sort of settled into, okay, I'm not going to get fired. It's going to be okay. <laughs> but that's what I like. I mean, to me, it's like most people can only dream of getting to work on a film of, yeah. of that scope. Yeah. You know, like that's the, the, the majors well, of the, the majors. The irony is like, this is not what I set out to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe I would have been even more terrified if, if my ultimate goal had been to shoot 10 full movies. But for me, it was more like Ryan, who I would do anything for at any time, you know, A, I knew he wasn't going to make a typical tentpole movie, but B, I would pay that, don't tell Marvel I said this, but I would pay them just to hang out with him for six months. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it wasn't about even the movie, it was getting to work with with Ryan again. But but like how much wiggle room does anyone have to be, I I don't want to say subversive, but provocative in that world? I was surprised. And it might be because Marvel was making way too many films at the same time and they were all pulled really thin, but it, I, they didn't feel like helicopter parents to me at all. Oh, nice. There were times where I actually like was looking over my shoulder almost Home Alone style being like, where, like, where are the grown-ups? Nice. <laughs> so I felt like Ryan was sort of su- supported in his vision and we sort of got to make an independent movie within the confines of a gigantic, you know, machine. That said, like, there's definitely a sandbox and you need to stay in that sandbox. But I think as long as, I mean, it's a pretty big sandbox. Like, there's a good amount of creative freedom within that. So I didn't feel like we were being manipulated in any way. Or, like, I really felt like they, you know, hired Ryan because they wanted to see what Ryan had to say. And, you know, Ryan's style is, I mean, he would probably have shot single camera if he could. And certainly, I mean, what DP wouldn't shoot single camera if he could. So. You know, the whole way we were set up was different than, you know, say Avengers, which I think the the um, Russo brothers like to shoot as many cameras as possible. I mean, yeah. I think their their base package is like 12 cameras. Oh, my God. Our base package was two, you know, and it was sort of I think they do let people take their own approach. And there were times where we were actually a single camera machine, you know. I mean, like it makes sense to have multiple cameras on a second unit situation where you're doing like a giant action sequence or something. But what about like when you're doing the dramatic scenes? Is that when you would generally have two? Yeah, it was a big ensemble cast. So there are definitely times where we had three. But for the most part, we were two and occasionally we were one. And and that was for all of the character scenes. Mm -hmm. But even our action sequences, you know, Ryan really wanted to do it all himself. Like a lot of those films do end up getting a little bit parted out to an action unit, a a massive second unit who sometimes have as many shooting days as the principal (laughs) unit. Uh, We ended up with, I think, nine true second unit days, which is like unheard of. for. Yeah, that's not bad. And that was really because Ryan wanted to have his fingerprint on it. And, you know, I mean, I think we would have done everything if we could have. Does it just not fit within sort of their model? It's the time. It was just the time frame. I yeah. think if, if you know, if they could have kept the cast an extra nine days and let Ryan shoot it himself, then maybe we would have. You know, it's really just at some point, like the cast has to go on with their lives. <laughs> Did the two of you have a voice in that kind of action-y second unit stuff? Cause oh, I, very much so. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I mean... So these films do have a, a, a good amount of previs, but that's another thing. Some movies live and die by their previs. You know, all, all of these films, I think, get previs, you know, or at least the action scenes get previs. Yeah. But then, like Guardians, I heard pretty much, because there were a lot of crossover with the crew, and they pretty much, like, their shot list came straight from previs. They would have, you know, whatever it was, 10 to 15 or 15 to 20, Let's I probably 10 to 15, like, setups a day that were directly from the previs, and they were just crossing them off the list. For us, previs was a jumping off point. It was a like, if we're lost and we need a map, we have this thing. 
but we pretty much started each day like you would a narrative film and you know ryan would work with the actors and kind of block it and then we'd figure out what adjustments we wanted to make to the lighting and then we would shoot it and it was Mm -hmm. not a ton of looking at previs or kind of like our our shot lists got a little bit more you know they were jumping off points too like it was um a lot of kind of finding our way on the day which i even felt supported in that which i think is you know it's probably an unusual system for a marvel film to kind of you know every day start fresh but they were they were okay with it you know as long as we kind of got what we needed that's good to hear that they're kind of letting the creative teams go in and that was my experience of it i mean you know i you might hear a different story from somebody else but i was i was really pleasantly surprised by it it's cool too Uh, and and i I don't know if tony liberatori will listen to this but he was on our podcast and he did a bunch of your boards i'm excited to see it just to kind of see how how it all comes together because it is one of the more interesting characters in the marvel universe i mean like you said that you would go work with ryan ryan coogler on anything right yeah but well let's talk a little bit about that relationship because you mentioned it earlier that that you were kind of introduced by the Sundance Lab, correct? Well, by specifically Elise McKimmy, who runs the labs. Got I was it. actually, I, I tried to do the labs and then it, they didn't really have a spot for me and it, I never ended up doing them, but she sort of cataloged this, you know, my my dream film. Mm-hmm. And then when Ryan was looking a year later or something, she reminded him of me or introduced him. And you worked on this with him and you worked on Fruitvale Station with him. Have you worked on any other projects with him? No, that's it. I was supposed to do Creed with him and, you know, the film kind of kept pushing and this is like still traumatic to talk about, but literally, you know, he came to me and was like, okay, we have our dates. And I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. And I just found out that I was pregnant and basically they were they, their dates came in at January to March and I was due February 28th oops yeah so you know these are the kind of things like we, we always sort of say there's no perfect timing for making babies but yeah. like fucking hell this could not have been any worse <laughs> because I, I truly believe I could have shot the film pregnant like there's no question about it. I knew I was gonna have an easy pregnancy and I, I did I shot I mean I shot the whole time I was pregnant and I probably could have shot right after I had the baby but to give birth in the middle of a studio film when they already were gonna be pushing back pretty hard on, you know, okay, are you sure that you're ready for this? Mm -hmm. It just, at some point we realized that it was a battle we probably weren't gonna win, you know, like, hey, can I let my operator replace me while I give birth? Um, Like now I actually do think I could do a movie where either, I mean, uh, you know, certainly where I shot right up to the day that I gave birth. Up to the day, wow. I mean, it's, I don't know, I I think people have this idea that pregnancy renders women, you know, incapable, but it's, it's not, like we're not sick, we're not, you know, physically impaired were just pregnant create that was a tough one because everybody you know everybody that i spoke to and i was like devastated when i figured out that i wasn't able to do this movie they were like oh don't worry about it it's just another rocky reboot and i was like trust me it is not just another rocky reboot yeah you know both because i knew ryan i mean i'd read the script and sure the initial script was a little more kind of straightforward but i knew i knew what he was going to make something special one of the most memorable films of that year for sure absolutely and you know and also just like at that point I mean, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for Panther because I can't say this anymore. But at that point, probably more people saw that film in one weekend that had seen everything I'd ever shot, <laughs> even counting people who'd watch things over, you know, more than once by a long shot. Well, and, and I don't know your relationship uh, with Ryan Coogler, but there's always that sense when 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 you can't work with someone who you've been working with, are they going to like my replacement better yeah, than me? And then, yeah, of course. You know, it was cool that he went with I mean, I, I actually thought it was awesome of him to both go with another female DP, but also Maurice is so badass, and, mm-hmm. you know, and I do think we have a similar sensibility. So it was nice to you know not be replaced by like a 65 year old white man. <laughs> 
Is it worth talking about what it's like to be in a field dominated by 65-year-old white guys? I mean, I don't mind talking about it. Um, is, is it part of your story at all? I think it probably is. You know, I, I think in some ways being being a, a woman in this business is as much an advantage as a disadvantage because we get to stand out in the room, you know? Like mm -hmm. we get... When you when you meet with ten people and nine of them are white dudes and one one person's a woman, like you remember them. So in some ways, I think it's actually a real asset. I mean, I also think it's an asset because who better to empathize? I mean, I just I actually find it really kind of crazy and ironic that this is an industry built around like em empathizing and visualizing human emotion, and yet like women are not fifty percent of the representation. That's so crazy to me. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that the between the range of experiences that we have as mothers or as, you know, as women and just, I don't know, the ability to kind of visualize creatively, like, I, I think it's a weird advantage. So it is, it's kind of, I think it's surprising that there are not more women DPs out there. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's part of my story or not. Why do you think there are more women DPs out there? I really, I can't answer that. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. Sure, you know, we're in charge of departments that are predominantly men, but like, okay, so what? Yeah. You know, like, the, I don't, I don't see any, there's, there's nothing that makes sense for an explanation for that to me. Yeah. Other than just that's what people are used to. So if there's any, you know, if I have any hesitation about talking about being a female DP, it's only because trying to get people to just think of us as DPs in the same way that like, you know, doctors and teachers, like we stopped picturing when you say teacher or doctor, you don't picture a man or a woman. And like, yeah. it'd be really nice to get to a point where when you say DP, you don't inherently think of gender. But that said, like it, it's it's an issue. Like I also don't think not not recognizing that there's a problem is going to solve it. So yeah, kind of just have to acknowledge it and then figure out solutions for it. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of why we haven't uh, with the women that we've interviewed. I don't unless they bring it up. I wouldn't talk about yeah. it. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think it. I don't think it's that big of an influence on my work. Like I, I like to think that the work is the work. Correct. But I do think you know there is a, something to be said for being an anomaly in this industry. I, I think it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. That said, I would you know as cool as it's been. All right, it's time. <laughs> let's let's get fifty fifty out there. But you know, but I just started noticing more more women in the grip and electric department and more women in especially in the camera department. And you know, I. I have, you know, being a white guy, I've encountered, you know, outrageous sexism because I'm, it's just assumed that I'm cool with it. And I, uh, on one project was getting ready to meet with a female DP and the producer said to me, literally, this is a very working producer said, I've never worked with a female DP who is any good as if that was like, you know, if you'd said, I've never worked with a Botswana DP who is any good to be like, well, maybe you got to find a better Botswana DPs. Like, what are you saying? And I almost hired her out of spite just you know we ended up going with a different person but and she's great by the way but to me like it's it's a it's a frustration that there's kind of an old school thing and you know like i'm i'm in my 40s and so like i kind of came up in the gen x thing where we thought we were a little bit more enlightened but i still think that there was a lot of inherent sexism that was going on when i was starting out and so to me it's interesting to see that there's hopefully a, a bit of a a bit of a shift i mean the yeah. fact that you're doing a tentpole movie you're not just doing in it's not there's nothing dismissive about independent films they're amazing the fact that you're doing a giant tentpole movie that that's to me that's a, a big deal i mean have any other women shot any of the giant superhero movies i don't think so i don't think so either yeah yeah no i mean it's that's that was the other thing like it's it's fucking cool and it's exciting and you know i i'm always up for a good challenge show in some ways the fact that it you know 
it wasn't my world and that it was so massive was like, mm-hmm. there's no way I'm going to say no to this. I just have to figure out what the fuck I'm going to do. <laughs> How did you have to adjust your technique, your process, whatever, to work on something where, and, and, and I guess in, buried in this question is how much of it is being a DP and how much of it is being a manager of massive teams? It, it is definitely more management than a small movie is, if for no other reason than because you're not the one doing everything, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so you have to, there is some creative control you have to give up just, you know, I mean, as somebody who likes operating, I recognize that my, you know, I, I had to sacrifice the minutia in favor of the macro. And so I, that was something where, you know, okay, I'm going to surrender control to my operators and I'm not going to micromanage them because... I actually think, you know, I hate being micromanaged. I think you get the best performance out of your department heads when you enable them and inspire them and kind of encourage them to seek out their own creative fulfillment and not just give them, you know, a carefully drawn storyboard and sort of say, this is exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's make it like this or better. Let's find, you know, let's let's find the cooler version of this and kind of let them go find that for themselves. But yeah, I mean, it's it's... The difference between turning the Titanic and turning a, a small sailboat. <laughs> so it's like on the one hand, you can do incredible things because you're the Titanic. But yeah. on the other hand, like you can't just, you know, steal a shot because you see something that's cool. And those are the things you just have to get used to. It's a really different, like Mudbound was all about, oh, I'm just going to grab this because it looks amazing. And Black Panther's like, you know, by the time you tell the 8,000 people you need to go steal something, <laughs> like the moment's over. Um, the bird has already flown away. Yeah, oh yeah. But yeah, I mean, the biggest, I guess, learning curve was the VFX of it all because I hadn't done anything that was so VFX driven. And what's interesting is, well, two things that I find interesting. One is that ultimately my takeaway was that it's actually all common sense. Like I was so intimidated by this thing that I knew nothing about. And at the end of the day, none of it, it, it all just sort of, it makes sense like mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll sort of I'll come back to that but the other thing is that i think these big films approach their vfx really differently so marvel's way of doing like now i know how to do it within the marvel system i know what their sandbox looks like but i actually think that's incredibly different than the way that dc does things and i'm sure both marvel and dc do things different than the way star wars does sure. things and and like so you kind of if you're going to do a vfx driven film you kind of have to figure out what their playing field is and then kind of work within that. But yeah, I mean, I I don't know. At the end of the day, it was much more straightforward than I thought it would be. So in terms of like just shooting days, how many shooting days were you on set for Black Panther versus Mudbound or any of the other movies you've done? So Mudbound was roughly 29, which was actually more than most of the movies I've done. um, And still like nothing for what we were trying to achieve. I know that's impressive for a, for a two hour movie. Yeah. And just two hour movie with war scenes and yeah. all the other kind of things. I mean, D kind of points out in that we've, we literally shot a battle scene before lunch. <laughs> the, the like the tank scene with Ronzel was ha- our first half of our day and then a company move. So it was pretty crazy that that schedule. And then Black Panther was, I think 72 principal days, which is actually still not that much for these films. Yeah. Like, I think most of their films are closer to 100. Really? Um, I, I don't quote me on this. Yeah. but And I don't know you know, if it ended up being 72 or 74, but it was in there. And most of them were in the upper 90s or lower 100s. Were you guys ever given like notes or direction about how to make a movie of that scale fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I mean, if Ryan was, I wasn't in those meetings. Okay. He knows that world, though. Like He came from... 
comic books and graphic novels and he was a Marvel fan, you know, so he didn't have to learn the language to play in to play in their world. Whereas I had to like go home and watch a bunch of Marvel movies because I didn't know what the fuck I was getting into. <laughs> I mean, I literally like I just I, I don't know if I, I think I saw uh, what was the one that Maddie Lupesik shot? Uh, he shot Iron Man. I think Iron I saw Man Iron Man probably because Maddie shot it. And I, I don't know if I had ever seen another Marvel film. Oh, really? Or, or DC. Like, it was not my world. I've now seen, you know, almost all of them. And I've, I certainly went to go support Wonder Woman. But, like, I, I had to start by, I tried reading the, the Black Panther comics. And I literally had to call somebody up and be like, how do you read a comic? Like, It's, it's not immediately intuitive. It, it isn't. Like, yeah. that was maybe the hardest part of the whole process was learning how to read a comic book. <laughs> but so that's how sort of out of my wheelhouse it was. Mm. And I think that's actually a lot of why Ryan wanted me to shoot it. You know, I, he has a tendency to sort of like to surround himself with different voices and different experiences. And I think he probably liked the fact that I was coming from this completely different place, you know, and that at the end of the day, I'm a, a character drama person, you know. Well, I was going to ask you that. So like coming from character drama and you've done some documentary work as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. Like what was it like moving to something that's like hyper stylized and I mean, like comic books are all about creating like these iconic images. And it's not that it goes against what you were doing with other stuff, but like how, what kind of an adjustment was that? Or how did you how did you put your spin on it? The thing about Panther is that it's still set in a world that we know. Like, I think I would have been completely lost trying to make a film like Thor. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime these movies sort of go into outer space, I, or people, you know, start fl- like a floating in thin air, I it lose it. They lose me as an audience member, but also like I, I wouldn't know how to approach it. And, you know, this is a fictional African country, but it's still an African country. Like we know what Africa looks like, give or take. A lot of it was actually inspired by real things and by, you know, our references were films like Planet Earth and Samsara. And, you know, I mean, sure, we looked at like Dark Knight and and some other big superhero movies, but there was a liberating component, which is like, oh, we can try some cool Dutch angles and we can flip (laughs) the camera around 360 and do these things that wouldn't really work in any other context. But, you know, from a lighting standpoint, it's we weren't trying to be super stylized. It's colorful, but it's colorful because of the costumes and because of the sunlight in Africa. And, you know, it's it, like I definitely wanted it to be saturated and, and have a contrast and, and color that maybe not all of their films have. But it's not I don't know. I think I still try to make the lighting make sense. Did you find yourself a lot like shooting on a green screen stage where you were going to have to comp it into some kind of realistic setting? And how do you go about lighting to make it feel real in those circumstances? So the first thing I did was, and thankfully with the full support of our BFX soup, is say, can we shoot on blue screen? The light, the bounce back off of blue makes some kind of sense. It, you know, it could yeah. come from the sky. Like the, when you get kicked back off of green, there's just so much artifice to that. And I don't care how good the compositor is, like... You feel it. It's it's hard to look at the monitor when you see green spill over everything. So we actually did the whole movie with blue screen instead of green screen, which I'm so grateful for. It's oh, that, also just existing in a world of green for 72 days. You start to go like batshit crazy. One day. I'm, yeah. I'm praying for death. We didn't have a ton of full. I mean, that's sort of what I, I was saying about it, it's not a completely imagined universe. Mm-hmm. So we had some locations we had you know pretty big set builds our production center hannah beach or you know created worlds that then we would extend out the windows would be blue and certainly above you know 10 feet or 12 feet would become set extensions but 
we only had one or two sets that were largely CG environments where it really was like you're looking around and it's all blue. Did you have any say so when they were creating CG environments or even just set extensions and how those were lit or how they were composed? Yeah, I mean, you you have, I think for these things to work, you really do. And that's, this is what I was saying about it being common sense, right? Like you have to have really solid communication from the production design, you know, dreaming up the environments through production and and the lighting of these environments to post and kind of executing, you know, these environments in the CG realm. And so you really all have to be on the same page. Like lighting from a source that's not going to exist in post would make no sense. You you know, you have to sort of know, okay, this is where the lights are going to be, or this is what's motivating, you know, this is, here's the sun and I'm going to put a 10K in shot, but you're going to replace it with the sun later, you know, or in the case of the vibranium mine, which I think there's probably pieces of in the trailer, we had these things called destabilizers, which were these, you know, effectively they're giant lights, but they destabilize the the vibranium so that it can be transported. Mm-hmm. And so those were the light sources. And I knew I knew what well those were actually there were you know we built built four of them, and knew that there was going to be you know 400 when we were done with them in post. But I, I knew what I was lighting from, you know, what I was matching to or lighting from. And I think that's the only way it can work is when you sort of do have some say, you know, and so sometimes whether it's communicating with the designer about like the fiction, you know, okay, this, we're going to need this scene to be a lot of practical lighting. So let's figure out a way to build, to incorporate it into the set or, you know, that's, that was new, new for me. Like Panther probably spent more money on fixtures. We had a whole fixtures department. Mm -hmm. Um, which is basically, you know, any kind of practicals and, you know, LED technology, like a lot of LED light ribbon built into, incorporated into sets, but it's also, you know, it's it's kind of all the practicals that you pull the guts out and then you put your own DMX systems in. And, you know, I'm sure my fixtures budget was bigger than most of the movies that I've shot before. Like, <laughs> it's bananas. That's yeah. how different it is. You know, and you do a lot more on a, on a dimming console um, than I'd ever done before. It's almost like theater. It is almost like theater, you know, and, you know, we call this industry painting with light, but like it's actually when you have everything wired into a console, you're, you're looking at a monitor and you're sort of, you are a little bit of like painting on the day, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's different. I had read that in seven years you'd had eight films that you shot at Sundance. How formative was getting into Sundance and playing in front of those kinds of audience in Park City? Like... How formative was that? I, I know that that your affiliation with Sundance is what brought you together with Ryan Coogler. I mean, there's so many that 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 we could talk about. Well, actually, so so talk a little bit about Dope. I mean, Dope was kind of the buzz film of that year at Sundance. Yeah, well, Dope was sort of unexpected because I never thought of it as a Sundance film. You know, like uh, Sound of My Voice and and Fruitvale Station and some of those films sort of made sense as a okay, this is hopefully going to get in Sundance, and it, it sort of is what you think of you know, when you think of Sundance, but Dope has a much more sort of mainstream vibe. So I remember when the producer called me, she was like, you're not going to believe it. Like, not only are we in Sundance, but we're in dramatic competition, which is, it It was it was really cool just because it was so unexpected. And then, you know, with Dope, I didn't know what the audience was going to make of it because I think of Sundance audiences as being, you know, a little bit less mainstream and yeah. looking for sort of more subver- subversive material and it was it was really cool because it, it connected to kind of everyone. There was there was a buzz around the film, 
Well, it kind of um, connected to kind of a nostalgia we didn't even realize we had. It's yeah. like the first thing I ever saw that had a nostalgia for that world. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's got like, um, you know, John Hughes meets Spike Lee meets, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's cool. And, and, you know, and Rick is, is so good with those kids. I mean, those kids were amazing. Mm. Um, and now obviously they all have their own standalone careers, but you know, when we, well, I guess Tony had just done Grand Budapest Hotel. He played the, he played the Indian butler. Ironically, okay. he's half, I think, Guatemalan maybe. I don't know. But he, yeah, they were, they had such a great chemistry and it was, it was fun. It was, you know, it was hard. Like that one was, I think a 20 day shoot, maybe mm-hmm. 24 days. So as fun as it looks like it was to make, it was one of those films where we were just like racing around every day kind of. <laughs> by the skin of our teeth just trying to make our days but you know it's always those like labor of loves that you're just so grateful that they work in the end and that they find an audience and I've been really fortunate I think when you look at how many films don't ever really get out there that like so many of these tiny movies that I did actually found an audience and and a shelf life too I mean like movies like that you know like they they're the kinds of movies that people refer to years later they're not just like yeah just you know I mean there's plenty of films that played Sundance that go away you know and you never hear from them again or whatever and but like dope is one of those movies where you mention it to people they know it yeah like it's it's probably something people have probably been cutting it into sizzle reels for other movie pitches for years yeah yeah. does playing Sundance as a cinematographer does playing Sundance have a big impact on you like you're there and I, I, I've been to I Sundance. think it depends on the film I mean you know I would say that I it was a whole different world with Fruitvale Station than it had been with any of the other films that I was there with. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had a, a similar but different experience with Dope. You know, it wasn't like Fruitvale won the jury and the and the uh, audience award. I don't think Dope, Dope wasn't that movie that was going to, you know, win the jury award because it's not quite, you know, dramatic or serious enough. But it did, it was that movie that got everybody excited and, and there was a bidding war and all of that. Um, and so... When you have the like zeitgeist movie there, then I think you really feel that palpable energy. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of, I mean, our, I think even in the last five years, this industry has gotten so saturated, you know, as cameras become less expensive and it's easier to make a feature, now suddenly you have so many more of them and, you know, plus all the great television and all of this other, you know, it's, it, it's very easy to fall through the cracks. I think it's getting easier and easier now for like really good material to never get seen. I mean, I, I, I'm sure probably my, my favorite movies of the year are movies that I've never even heard of. It's disappointing, I guess. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, Sundance, it doesn't, just because your film plays at Sundance doesn't necessarily mean that the world's going to see it. But mm. there are those, you know, five to ten that kind of emerge every year and get to like live on. But playing there, especially playing there as frequently as you did, did it like when you got into Sundance, did your phone start ringing? No, I mean, I, these things take time. My phone's still not ringing. Like, it is, but it isn't, you know? Like, these things, I think, take a little more time than that, or at least for me, they did. I did get taken seriously. Like, once I had a film at Sundance, suddenly I was, I could call myself a DP, and, you know, I could find an agent that wouldn't shut the door in my face. And, like, people saw, because I'd had something that ha- that had been seen or could be seen, then I suddenly, I guess, uh, there was a, a legitimacy, but it didn't for me feel like I had overnight success. I think this industry, I mean, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's just the nature of being freelance, but it's mm. not, I don't know if that's really how it ever works. Like, <laughs> that you kind of 
uh, you know, get the instant acclaim and then you're set for life. Well, I think it's interesting to hear because I do think that a lot of people and, you know, certainly like when I was in film school, I would have thought, hey, you're you're you made a film that's in Sundance. You're you're on your way, you know, like, you know, game, set, match. And yet I know that it isn't necessarily always the case, even if you have a big film at Sundance, sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't. It, it, it gets people's attention, but it doesn't necessarily make your career. You still have to keep, you know, hustling and working. Yeah. And we're below the line. I mean, at the end mm. of the day, like we're always going to have to hustle because we're not, you know, we're DPs. We're not. I mean, maybe everybody mm. does, but everybody like, does. OK, well, that's good to know. But, <laughs> you know, I, I also think there's a little bit of the attention goes to the to the act, to the breakthrough actors and the breakthrough directors and and the below the line. It's, you know, we're always going to be the people who are like. Oh, what's your name again? <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter how many films that it's on Nance. There are people who are still like, oh, nice to meet you. What have you done before? Yeah. Well, it's great that like Ryan Coogler, you know, kept kept you on uh, on the team and kept yeah. collaborating well, with you. It's such a testament to him. I mean, that's something that I really think. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't have been on Black Panther without Ryan. I mean, A, because he was doing it, but also just going to bat for me. And, and I think. I think loyalty is so important in this business. It really is. Like, I, there is inherently a lot of pressure when you know a, a indie director gets a bigger movie to ha- surround themselves with people who've done it ten times before. So for somebody like Ryan to be like, "No, you know what? I want my team to come up with me," like that's a real testament to him. Because I, I've had, I've had the opposite happen as well a number of times where you know. And I think we all have. I almost think it's to be expected a lot of times where yeah. somebody gets a, a big shot and then the executives or whoever is giving them their next opportunity is going to say like, no, no, let's bring in the the people we know. Like, let's bring in the people who've, who've done it for us all before. And then, you know, yeah, it to me, it, it can be a benefit and a handicap to that filmmaker. But I, you know, I mean, like Ryan Coogler's work from the beginning has always seemed so confident in the fact that you were behind the camera doing it. it you know, it makes sense to me that he would bring you along to do something like Black Panther. But, it, you know, also, like, I just personally can't imagine what it must be like to face the giant, you know, monolith of a huge studio tentpole. Yeah. I mean, I think it was interesting that we were just we were all facing it together. Yeah. I mean, literally, you know, because it was you know, his editor, his his production designer, none of us had ever done a temple. Even our VFX soup, actually, he'd done temples as second unit VFX soup, but it was his first lead credit. So we were all sort of finding our way together, which is, I think that's actually a testament to Marvel that they let, you know, six rookies attack the, <laughs> the system. Well, not rookies, but six. Yeah, I mean, temple rookies. Yeah. <laughs> it's, is it, how different is it from making all the other movies that you've made? It's incredibly different. It is a lot more sort of planning and and communi- communicating and, you know, you're running. It's it's a ton of multitasking, which, you know, I mean, that's, I think, all filmmaking. But now you have second units, sometimes third units happening at the same time and, you know, making sure that, that everybody's still executing your vision. And, I mean, my, my grip and electric department on the movie is bigger than than the combined total of all grip electric departments I've had on every other movie by <laughs> probably tenfold. I mean, wow. it's just a whole different piece. Rigging becomes way, a way bigger piece of the puzzle. Like, you know, my, my rigging gaffer and my rigging key grip were, were as if not, well, I, I won't say more important, but certainly as important as my gaffer and my key grip. Like, they're so instrumental to a movie like this. And that's not, I've been lucky to get rigging days on any of my films, you yeah. know, even when I've desperately needed them because they've never had the budget to even, you know, have lights hanging a day before we needed them. <laughs> so that was a whole different 
you know, ball game for me. So are you looking now into into the future? Are you looking to do more of the kind of big studio stuff? Are you looking to do more Mudboundy kind of stuff? Mudbound, sure. So, I mean, it's not that I would rule out a studio movie. Like, I would love to shoot a James Bond film or, you know, there's certain big movies that I think could be really cool. I don't know that I'm... And I wouldn't rule out another Marvel film. I just don't know that I would do it right away. Like, mm-hmm. I think... It was a great, it was an awesome place to visit, but it's not where I want to call home. I'm not ready to put my flag down and sort of say, this is it for me. Yeah. I still gravitate, I think, towards, you know, sort of character-driven dramas. I'm realizing that I finally have arrived, my whole career I've been sort of chasing this target, and I feel like I finally landed 10 feet away from the target, and the target's ghosted. So <laughs> I'm having to kind of reimagine. I mean, it's it's actually, it's kind of sad for me. Like I always wanted to shoot big dramas and big big dramatic features specifically. And, and that doesn't really exist anymore. Like $80 million dramas don't happen. They do on television. That's about They work. do on television. Yeah. But as a DP, TV becomes repetitive. I, for me, like a, a miniseries, great. But 14 episodes of the same looking show. Like I got into this business because I love the... I love that we get to tell different looking, you know, visually different stories and, and every, you know, two hours and three or six months, you can kind of change shapes. And so I never sort of like my, my personal vision for myself wasn't to do television just because you're sort of, it's the same look. It's a consistent look. Most shows. Yeah. You know, maybe not something like, you know, Black Mirror. You know, there, there are some shows that try to kind of reinvent themselves with every episode. So I don't know. I don't know what the future looks like anymore. Like, I, I, I literally feel like I, I got to where I thought I was trying to go and it doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I'm sort of trying to reimagine it now. But I, I like trying things I haven't done before. And so there's no shortage of that. <laughs> That's cool. I think that's a great place to leave it. So uh, where can people find you online? You have Twitter, Instagram, your own website. Well, my Instagram is more of a baby ram these days. It's not the most exciting <laughs> cinematic. Well, I mean, I guess it's it's yeah. cinematic baby photography. Um, but that's uh, Morrison DP or R. Morrison. One of those is Twitter and one of those is Instagram. And I don't know which is which. R. Morrison, I think, is Instagram. Mm-hmm. Twitter, I basically don't do anything on. Um, and then... I have a website that hasn't been updated for a very long time, but if you want to see antiquated work, it's uh, www.rachelmorrison.com. <laughs> the Museum of Rachel Morrison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cinematography. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Thank you for having me. So, holy crap, that was Rachel Morrison. Rachel, you have to come on the show again. That was great. Yeah, you have to come back after you win the Oscar and let us hold it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ilya. Yeah. Who is our war story from this week? Our war story is from Dan Neese. Dan Neese, amazing Steadicam operator, second unit uh, shooter. Camera operator, now a cinematographer in his own right, but someone who's been around a long time, has an amazingly long career of doing consistently great work, very active in the community. And if you're a friend of his on Facebook, very active Facebook share, which yep. is always fun. So uh, I feel like I know him better from Facebook than anywhere else. He, he is he's the epitome of a Southern gentleman. And here he is, Dan Neese. And now, war stories. Years ago, when I just moved to Hollywood, I'd found this little apartment that was down in sort of a basement, but it had its own courtyard. And then I stayed there for a while, and I moved up into an apartment above that. One day I was coming in, I was bringing my equipment back into the back door of the building, and another friend of mine saw me there, and he said, you ever been to Chile? 
And I said, no, I haven't, but I'd like to go. And he said, okay, well, I've got a friend that's looking for a Steadicam guy down there. We'll send you to Shelly. Well, I get a phone call, and I have several phone calls back and forth between this guy and Chile. So I'm, I'm going to go down there, and the night before I'm going to go, Pinochet's there, and, and they're, they're having a sort of a coup go on. Pinochet's the dictator. I'm looking at the television, and I'm seeing things, explosions in Santiago. Um, turmoil everywhere, you know, and I'm supposed to get on a plane to go there the next morning. So I get on the plane. I fly down there. I don't know anybody in Chile. It's just me and my Steadicam flying to Chile. In the time between I left and the time that I get there, Pinochet's been deposed and they have Alwyn as the new president. I get picked up at the airport and I'm driven around by the DP and we're riding across Santiago in a Volkswagen Beetle and the sun's hitting me in the face. And out of nowhere, he turns to me and goes, you have cock face. And I'm thinking to myself, cock face, should I just bean this guy? Should I hit him? And then he looks at me, he goes, Cox feet. And he points to my eyes where my eyes had, I was squinting in the sun. What we would call crow's feet, he called Cox feet. We end up going over the set. They just opened up the Patagonia Highway, so I thought I was being flown down there to shoot something on the Patagonia Highway. No, we end up in a warehouse shooting an office supply commercial. They've flown me all the way to Chile to shoot in a warehouse an office supply commercial. We do it. They have to buy money on the black market to pay me. And I come back with my pockets bulging with $100 bills, flying out of Chile with my life and my steady cam, and make it back to Los Angeles in one piece. Great story. Great story. <laughs> Cock face. I gotta remember that. And now, short ends. All right, so that was Dan Neese's War Story. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Can't wait to have you on the show, which we already did. So that's like a complete lie on my part. Ben, it's that time again. What time would that be? It's time to pay the bills. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to talk about Ari. Ari, of course, I've talked about for uh, the last several episodes about how fantastic they are and how what a wonderful supporter they are of what we're doing. Well, I want to mention their Allura lightweight zoom lenses. They've been used to shoot tons and tons of television shows and feature films. They are a special collaboration between Airy and a company called Fujinon, which is known for making some of the best lenses in the world. Yeah. But these lenses... Little company called Fujinon. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, like... No big deal. NBD. It, I think they have like... 50% of the worldwide market or something like that. But anyway, they have built some lenses specifically for Airy and they often get overlooked and they shouldn't be. They're amazing. They're built to Airy specs. And of course, Charles Pappert, big fan, shoots a lot of Fujinon, owns a bunch of those lenses. Charles Pappert getting two shout outs in the same episode. Right. Well, you you're know. welcome, Charles. <laughs> He's totally not listening. He doesn't listen to us. <laughs> I would love to get a fan, a fan email from Charles someday, but yeah, he's, it would never happen. It would not ever happen that Charles Pappert would send us a fan email, especially about us talking about airy lenses. No airy Allura lightweight zooms. Super fantastic. Don't take up a lot of space. Super high resolution, beautiful glass. Uh, if you are in the market for such things, you should totally, totally demo them. You can demo them at places like Hot Rod Cameras. We, we might have. Some Wait a minute. Yeah. I thought this was a commercial for Aerie. Okay. It's a commercial for Aerie. Sort of. Okay. It's Aerie. <sighs> Man. Sorry, Aerie. Okay. Hey, uh, Ben, it's short ends. Okay. So I have kind of a minor thing I want to talk about and you've tried to discourage me, but I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it now. This is not your short end. This is not my short end. But Why it, are you bringing it up? 
because I'm frustrated. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So Kodak uh, announced they like two years ago announced that they were going to be releasing a brand new Super 8 camera. Wait, Kodak who? Sorry, okay. <laughs> Kodak who? The people wow. who make the film? They make yes. the film? Yes, they announced something two years ago. Like two years ago that they were going to release a, a brand new Super 8 camera. And this Super 8 camera was going to feature a flip out viewfinder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going to video f- tap. feature an HDMI video tap so you could tap your video like a normal person and uh, and, and watch it on a monitor. And it was going to be like 400 bucks. It's going to be like 350. I heard 350 to $700 was the range that oh, I heard. I heard, four, I heard 400 and then I heard 750. So yeah. So at the and Consumer Electronics Show this week, we found out that they're selling this camera for between 2500 and $3,000. You know, if you fetishize film, if you love film, if you uh, want to do it, you're going to pay. You are going to pay for that. my boner for this camera just went away. It just, it just <laughs> retracted up into my body cavity. It became an innie, huh? I could not be less interested. A $3,000. This reminds me of like two, three years ago, there was a company, I want to say it was in Scandinavia mm, that had a yeah. pin registered super eight camera for $5,000 and they, you know, didn't last because no one's going to pay $5,000 for a super eight camera. And moreover, no one's going to pay $2,500 for a super eight camera. This Kodak, if, if anyone from Kodak is listening to me, you, it's like you're making a printer. They could give away a printer because they charge so damn much for the toner, but then you have the printer and you have to get the toner. In this case, the film is the toner. We will spend money on the film. Figure out a way to make this camera affordable for Joe so-and-so like myself and uh, film students and hipsters and people who want to mess around with film. If you figure out a way to make it affordable, you're going to have a, a great comeback for Super 8. If you're, if you're charging for this camera, people are going to say, I could go out and I could get a a great DSLR and some lenses for that much money. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll one up you here. If they they actually do charge that, that amount, they'll not only go out and buy a great DSLR and maybe a lens, they'll go to their local thrift store or eBay and pick up a used Super 8 camera and still shoot the Super 8 and take advantage of their whole system, but they'll do it on a $25 camera or a $40 camera instead of the $2,500. It's true. For real, actually, I have like five pretty kick-ass Super 8 cameras that I've collected over the years that all work. Yep, I've got one sitting in my my garage right now. (sighs) It just frustrates me because the new Super 8 camera sounded great, and then it's like it comes out and it is, as I like, this is a pejorative for me, priced to rent. That's my code for you're charging too much for your camera. You know what, Ben, I'm going to do my short end now because I can actually see that you've turned red and you're almost hyperventilating I am. talking about this. I know. So, I'm going to so go get a paper to, bag and breathe need, into it for a few need minutes. You take like five minutes. I and just talk want about Super 8 to be back. All right. So, so my short end this week is actually about a really cool product. And actually, you can see the results of that product right now. If you go to YouTube, you just need to go to YouTube and uh, type into the search engine SIA. Sia Christmas videos or Sia Ho Ho Ho. If you do that, you'll get three different shorts, which have now been viewed by millions of people. They're Sia music videos. You've heard of Sia. You know, everyone knows Sia. She's got that very distinctive hair. Yeah, I, I know who Sia is. Okay, cool. I, I, I knew you were I knew you were hip to Sia, but Yeah. Okay. I mean I'd be lying to say that I have all of her albums or anything, but well, she who is, has albums anyway. She's, we just have she's Spotify a, a pop artist, uh, you know, in the, in the same vein of so many other pop artists these days. But really, really big. Sia worked with some of our clients to make these stop frame animation music videos. And they use two really cool pieces of technology, which I'm not going to get technical here, but they use something called the Emotimo system. The Emotimo is motion control, which means that you have 
exact control over the placement of the camera in X, Y, Z, and also maybe Q space, a different axis. You get four axes that you get Q, to play with. There's a new dimension. Are these people making films in the fourth dimension? It's not that kind of thing, Ben. It's a, you know, <sighs> you get four axes. You get the ability. Stressing out. Okay. So a whole new dimension I need to think so about. Here, here's the thing though. You can control where you put the camera, what the camera does, and you can do it for animation and a lot of animated projects work this way. They work with these sort of tools, but Emotomo is frame accurate and really inexpensive. And they shot with Nikon cameras and lenses and dragon frame software, which is also incredibly affordable. And the results are awesome. So if you are into stop frame animation, as I am, uh, you might really enjoy watching these videos, which are free and uh, you can watch them right now. Well, and I, I'm, I'm a big fan of stop motion uh, animation and I would even say like, you know, a lot of people of my generation, like when I went to film school, everyone was like Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, the movie that got them into it. And to me, it was always Clash of the Titans. Harryhausen. Harryhausen. I was obsessed with Harryhausen and probably the geekiest moment of my entire life was the mo I actually met him twice, but meeting, meeting Ray Harryhausen, Alicia said that I like turned into a different person. Yeah, I've seen the photo of you. You don't you don't look like you're in your right mind while that's going on. And she did tell me the same story that you turn in. You, you don't get starstruck. You I've seen you around, you know, you know, around people, people who you weren't you, there when I met Spielberg. No, was, I wasn't there for that. Yeah. So, but you were starstruck for Spielberg and you're starstruck for Harryhausen. So there you go. You're to your top I, two. I, I think those two are pretty fair to be starstruck about. All right. So, uh, Ben, what is your short end this week? I swear I'm not on the payroll of this company, but there's a company called Hollywood Camera Work and you can find them at HollywoodCameraWork.com. You've talked about them before. Yes, because they make the thing I use every, for every project I ever direct. It's called Shot Designer and it's just a super quick, efficient, stupid, easy. You could figure it out without looking at a single tutorial kind of thing to make overheads very quickly to sort of block figure out where you absolutely need to block your actors and where you suspect your camera angles are going to be and if nothing else it's usually like my first draft of every scene is done on my desktop computer because they make it for the desktop and the ipad and the iphone and whatnot uh the first time I, I i do it is always on that and it really helps me get my head around whatever what i have to get when i go into that scene so whenever they come out with a new product i i find it interesting and they have come out with a new product that is a screenwriting software called Causality. And Causality is not, it's not a final draft. It's not fade in. It has that functionality in it. So you can write your script in it. But the idea of Causality is that it's designed to help you do kind of the note card, the outlining process. Mm. And it's designed to make it so that you can easily rearrange note cards even after you've started writing the script. And it rearranges the pieces of the script as you rearrange the note cards. Ooh. Yeah, it's, and it basically builds a timeline. It's not like one of those programs like Dramatica. It, well, I shouldn't say. It's not doing the job for you. It's giving you a tool to kind of help you break out your idea. This script will write itself. Yeah, it ain't like that. Uh, but it, it is designed to kind of help you eliminate plot holes and enables you to kind of back up and look at your script in miniature, if you will, and see like, oh, okay, I, I have this character leave here and they're angry and then they show up here and they're not. Like it, it, it has tools to track everything. And I haven't used it to write anything yet, but I think it's a fascinating idea. And knowing the people at Hollywood camera work as I do, I suspect they're going to figure out a way to integrate shot designer into this one day. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is a serious question. Is one of the tools, the happy ending tool? Can you just like <laughs> select that tool and then boom, happy ending of all people, Ilya, you should know that that's illegal in California. <laughs> How, why should I know that? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Of all people. 
Uh, no, I don't believe, I don't believe that it has, it, it's not writing your story for you. It's just giving you a palette on which to outline everything. Is it an app? Is it software? It is software and okay. you can download a free version of it and use it just to do the outline. And then, uh, they're trying to be like Adobe and a lot of other people and create a subscription model, or you can buy it outright. And the outright price I'd say is a little high. It's like, it's like 280 bucks or something like that. Mm. And that's more expensive than final draft and final draft is completely overpriced. Like you can get fade in, which a lot of people are moving from final draft to fade in now and fade in, I think is $80. Final Draft is from a world when you would spend $250 on a fancy pants word processor. Causality is not a fancy pants word processor. It's sort of a all-in-one screenwriting ideating tool. Hmm. So it, it seems interesting. I have downloaded it. I've messed around with it. It seems interesting. Uh, if any of our listeners check it out, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we should take a moment right now just to remind our listeners of the things that they can do for us. If you like this, uh, just like the fan mail, thank you for that fan mail, by awesome. the way. Please subscribe, subscribe. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, we we have a, under a thousand likes on Facebook. I'd love to get a thousand likes. That would be amazing. So uh, I think we're at 940. 40 something. Right we don't now. spam anybody. It's no. just Illy and me doing all this stuff. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, we have never sent an email to anyone in a spammy sort of way. So. Yes, correct. But uh, anyway, please subscribe to our show. Tell your friends, write a review. We have fantastic reviews. We have all these great reviews, but we could use some fresh ones if you are feeling inspired. If you liked listening to the show, you know, give us a shout out. Yes, do all of those things. So, Ilya, where can people find you online? Yeah, they can find me over here at hotrodcameras.com, just like the uh, British lady says. <laughs> uh, anyone can find me at benrockonline.com, and also I'm Neptune Salad on Twitter and um, on Facebook and wherever the hell else you want to find me. On Facebook, we are Cinepod, C-I-N-E-P-O-D, which is, which is pretty handy, Facebook forward slash Cinepod, you'll find us. So, and as always, we want to thank uh, Mike Wilbanks for actually doing a Herculean effort and turning the Rachel Morrison interview around in record time. Mike, 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 <laughs> Mike. You can find him at lumospictures.com. We'd like to thank Kay's Alatraxi. You can find him at musicbykays.com. Every scrap of music you heard in this was composed and performed by Kay's. Including the music you're probably hearing right now coming in towards the end of the yeah, show. Kind of seeping in and filling filling us like we're in a bucket and it's going to drown us. Do, 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 do. You're ruining it. And uh, last but not least, we want to thank Alana Cody for being a kick-ass producer and really pushing us to uh, crank out these episodes a lot faster than, than we ever have before. Yeah, uh, we got some, some, some great ones coming up too. Cool. So thank you, everybody. And we will... We're not going to, I always say, we'll see you next time. We will see them in episode. Well, yes, we're won't. never going to see anybody because uh, firstly, this is one <laughs> this direction. This is audio. That's this is right. audio. And also they will hear us. So, but it sounds dickish to say you'll hear us. They, they might tweet us. They might do That's something. True. Anyway, we look forward to interacting with you in any way that we can <laughs> on the next episode 20 coming ep up. Episode two zero. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.